Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and in this sixth season, we delve deeper into the world of clean tech startups and their founders, from inspiring stories and words of wisdom to the toughest challenges. You can expect to learn about how these pioneering startups and the founders at their helm are propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. In addition, they'll be offering you timeless teachings to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone everywhere to live their purpose. So welcome to today's podcast, where we are privileged to host two remarkable guests. Firstly, we have Marta Krupinska, a tech entrepreneur, proud migrant, and advocate for diversity. She's the CEO and co-founder of Curate, a company at the forefront of technology, sustainability, and impact. Marta's contributions to the tech industry have earned her recognition from esteemed publications such as Forbes and the Evening Standard. Joining us alongside Marta is Dom Airy, the Client Partnerships Director of Curate, with 15 years experience across mission-driven startups, nonprofits, and corporates. Dom is passionate advocate for scaling organizations that deliver sustainable, social, and environmental impact. Her achievements have been acknowledged, including being named one of the third sector's most promising CEOs and featured in Management Today's 35 Women Under 35. So today we are ready for an inspiring conversation with these two incredible women about their journey, diversity, and how they leverage technology for positive change within the carbon industry. So ladies, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to hand it to you just to kind of tell us a little bit about yourselves, actually. Cool. Um, well, thank you. And again, yeah, you were reading these introductions and I was like, they sound cool. I want to hang out with them. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So, uh, so, so if, if I may kick off, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I, um, spent my entire life in tech, sort of fell into tech at 19 years old when I started my first company, um, uh, since, uh, have, uh, well started for, this is curate is the fourth company, uh, two exits in fintech, uh, using technology to make financial services cheaper for individuals, for predominantly migrants starting from money transfers and then um, salary advances for public sector workers, which is actually how I first met Dom. So we go way back, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about. Um, and I then spent almost five years at Google uh, running Google for Startups, um, which uh, is the arm of Google that um, accelerates and invests in early stage companies. We did a lot of work with um, sort of profit with purpose companies, so healthcare, education, um, financial inclusion, climate. Uh, we did a lot of work uh, with underrepresented founders, predominantly women and founders of color, uh, kicked off a fund of Google's balance sheet in Europe, investing in black-led startups, probably some of the most important work I had the privilege of of participating in and um, sort of helping founders from emerging markets in Europe, Middle East and Africa connect better to the UK ecosystem. Um, and my journey sort of led me to carbon removals when soon to be three years ago, two and a half years ago, I first heard of a company that my former co-founder, Ruben Saxon and Dom Airy were starting in the soil carbon space. And it absolutely rocked my world. But I'll, I'll, I'll finish that story and hand over later and hand over to Dom for her intro. I know we, we told you this all, all gets a bit incestuous, but like, like all good stories, there's lots of points of connection. Um, yeah, thanks, Marta. So 
I, I think slightly different to Marta. I think I think we both commonly like solving complex problems, but I think I've been probably a bit more bit more promiscuous in terms of which which sectors I've worked in and what that's looked like. But yeah, started my career kind of in big big corporate land and and kind of developed some kind of you know commercial tools in that space, but. Uh, moved quite quickly into working into international development, so in the impact space. So first worked in economic development, uh, trying to create the ecosystem and get investment in for young entrepreneurs and in lots of different development contexts, which was fascinating. It took me kind of walking all over, uh, working all over the world. And I think got, got some really early exposure to kind of entrepreneurship in lots of different guises. I then started running nonprofits, ran a UK nonprofit focused on uh, supporting young people, particularly with their, their sort of mental health in a, in a variety of contexts. Um, which which I really really enjoyed and I, I love working on the impact side but I think um, I think I always had a pull to working in the kind of startup space and um, uh, then initially kind of joined Marta and Ruben running this fintech that you heard Marta talk about and just totally got the startup bug and I think uh, worked for another really interesting health tech that was also working in in a sort of developing context but I think was always searching for my you know the mission that was closest to me and having pre- previously done a, a post grad in the sustainability space. I kind of learned about natural capital about 10 years ago. It always really, really stayed with me. And I think, um, yeah, when I had this opportunity to, to set up the Soil Carbon startup and really think about how we create the right instruments for natural capital assets, I, I sort of jumped at the opportunity. That there's a whole, a whole story to tell about um, that startup and the experience and the kind of rise and fall. But latterly led me to, to meeting Marta and the kind of broader founding team at Curate, which was um, just a joy. And, and to be part of this carbon removal industry now is just... Uh, it's like the, the sort of planets have aligned in terms of kind of impact and pace and feeling like you're part of this just tremendous industry moving at force. Amazing. And you're quite a double act. I love it. I suppose maybe maybe that would be a good sort of a good segue into sort of explaining what Curate is. And, and, and this kind of goes back to the founding story. So, uh, so um, I, I mean, I first heard about carbon removals, um, driving to... Uh, I should be saying this, driving to an illegal Christmas party in COVID. Now I have to say, in the context of illegal Christmas parties, this was five people in a living room, in a social bubble, yet still we were not allowed to leave the house. And in that in that journey to Lincolnshire, of all places, I first hear of Soil Carbon. And it absolutely blows my mind because of three reasons. One, um, there's actually an opportunity to actively sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and put it away safely for a very long time. And I was like, wow, I've kind of become a little bit defeatist when it comes to climate. I sort of, I looked at how we're not really decarbonizing fast enough. The incentives don't seem to be aligned well enough. It's just, you know, with the Paris Agreement, we're not really sticking to. And I think I was just feeling more and more hopeless. And my co-founder, Dr. Gabriel Walker, often talks about how people in climate very rarely feel the feeling of hope. And that whole idea of let's sequester carbon actively absolutely rocked my world and I sort of started asking myself okay if we can do that in soils what are different ways in which we can do it like how does it work in trees how does it work to can we can we mechanically do this and what would an engineered solution look like secondarily you know when you sort of look look at the IPCC report so the intergovernmental panel for climate change uh, you know a couple of years ago they said we will need 10 billion tons of carbon removal by 2050 to stay below 1.5 at which point basically we have irreversible damage to the planet and, you know, our very existence becomes very, very much challenged. Um, as an entrepreneur, 
I, oh, I've always been in a position of having to explain to the ecosystem how big an idea can get. This is an industry where it's not about how big can this get, it's how big does it have to get so we can actually survive as a species. And that is just such a phenomenal mindset to get into um, when you're starting a company. But I think thirdly, um, I, I've always thought about equity and, and, and justice in, in tech and, and wondering to what extent, you know, as we're building businesses that have a purpose how do we also make sure that they promote things like equity and diversity globally? And when you think about the climate issue, we won't be able to solve it UK for UK, US for US, India for India, Kenya for Kenya. We actually have to solve it as a global community. And from a planetary perspective, whether you remove carbon in Kenya or in the UK, actually the impact is exactly the same. So what if we could trade these assets at the same price and in a way where, you know, that money will go so much further in the global south, not to mention that many of these technologies just apply better and are more beneficial when set up in the global south. And then you start thinking about the social consequences, development consequences, creating you know, jobs and, and opportunity and wealth in places that are most exposed to climate change. And just all of that as an ecosystem was absolutely fascinating. So as Ruben and Dom were building SWORD um, in sort of 2020, 2021, I went on a journey to speaking to every VC in Europe that knew anything about carbon removals. And by the way, there weren't very many at that time. The entire space is a few years old, so not very many experts. And sort of slightly drawing from my fintech background, thinking, okay, so there is this unregulated market, basically trading futures of an asset that nobody understands, and you don't know how to buy or sell it or verify trust or qualify supply in how, who finances it. And sort of I had all of those questions that I didn't have answers to. And I think, well, two things. One, the importance of rest, as all good ideas come to you either when you're in the shower or when you had a couple of glasses of wine. In my case, it was the latter. I was by myself in Mallorca trying to catch a breath. And I remember calling my mom going, oh my God, I think I need to build something that's going to look a bit like a stock exchange for carbon removals. Um, but also I fundamentally had an issue in that I was not a climate expert by any stretch of imagination. Um, and I was introduced to two of my co-founders, Dr. Gabriel Walker, who's a world-renowned climate scientist, um, and, and Mark Stevenson, who, amongst others, um, advised the Ministry of Defense on uh, climate change and national security. Instead sort of that mix of, okay, so we have business, we have climate science, and we have a sort of a, 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 an esteemed environmentalist sort of made me feel, okay, maybe if, if this would be an ecosystem business, how could we work together to build a market maker for carbon removals. And then paradoxically, what happens is while we're building Curate, the sort of the first version of the idea for Curate, I always had this idea that, you know, when we're ready, we can just partner with SWORD and things are going to go brilliantly. Now that doesn't always go to plan, but I suppose if things haven't played out for SWORD the way that it did, I would never have, the, have had the opportunity to get Dom into Curate. So I suppose in some ways I'm sad, but I'm grateful. I'll take that. I'll take that. Me too. I think, but it, it's so interesting. Like I'm, I'm such like the, the business, you know, sport is, is such a kind of poster child for some of the challenges and deficiency of the carbon removal market at the moment. You know, we were a business that was VC backed. We had some novel tech. We had a good founding team. We had a founder that had exited before and knew, knew how to navigate the VC market. But we, we fundamentally, you know, beyond the kind of first stage of investment, re really struggle to get a second follow-on investment at scale. And I think if you look at the shape of financing now for carbon removal, 
we, we've got a real structural problem. I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far to say as that it's a vacuum, but we've got a massive funding gap. And interestingly, if you zoom out and look at some of the big actors in carbon removal at the moment, you know, we're, we're one of them, but you know, it's the, the, the market dynamics are off. The, the market is upside down, is full of marketplaces and brokers. And there, you know, there's fairly weak supply and demand at the moment. So I think, I think if you're operating in this space and you don't have a huge vested interest in how do you get supply moving and get liquidity to supply, but I think you're probably playing the wrong game. I think there's there's lots of things that need to be true for this ecosystem to flourish, but financing is is pretty chief among them. So that that is was kind of really high on my agenda coming in as an organisation that had kind of lived through that experience and seen the absence of, fu- of funding for early early carbon removal organisations. And I think just following on from that, um, and I think you both made this point. There's a there's a real lack of knowledge and education around the carbon markets. Like, how do we change that? How do we navigate that? And how do we make sure that over the next few years it, it looks very different? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in first on this, Marta. I mean, I look the, the the carbon removal industry needs a really really bold assist, and 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 you know no, no less than right at the beginning in terms of market awareness, you know, we're, we're, and, and market understanding and education. You know, we're, we're coming at this really confusing period of time where we're trying to uncouple the sort of narrative from what's come before in terms of offsetting and some of these slightly spurious carbon neutral claims and you know we're all following what's happening at the moment in terms of some pretty high profile litigation in this space you know delta on the kind of airline side and then just a plethora of corporates now rowing back on these carbon neutral claims which really haven't been robust and we're in this moment in time where we're trying to transition the market towards what does it mean to me to be net zero how do you actually neutralize your residual emit? How do you decarbonize effectively at pace? And then how do you actually neutralize those emissions, those residual emissions? And it's not up for debate that that's carbon removal. And it's not up for debate, you know, scientifically that that's what we need. What, what's up for debate is what's the optimal blend of removals? Which ones are going to scale fastest? And there's still just so much work to be done in terms of how this industry is regulated and what are, are the right incentives and disincentives so i guess coming back to, to your question i would say i think i think we have to start with getting the basics right for the industry getting a really clean narrative that uncouples the old from the new and starts to set some of the right incentives in the marketplace that enable us to build the removals industry which we absolutely have to for the planet I think well, there's lots of green shoots at the moment. If you look at you know the science-based target initiative and some of their net zero codes and and, and various other kind of rule setters in this space, but they're nascent. And I think you know that there's a lot to be done that's, that they, that needs to essentially radically and quickly build the right infrastructure incentives for this marketplace to grow at place um, and to and, and for buyers to see the right demand signals in the marketplace. And I think the, the, the only thing that I'd add is because I mean it's. It's it's daunting. Like if we if we look at the total numbers so far, this is going to be a trillion dollar industry. But at the minute, four hundred million dollars has been spent globally on carbon removals. It is actually tiny, and the challenge is that everybody is sort of fighting for that same pot of cash. But there are a couple of things that I think are really exciting for us. One is the UK is arguably the best place in the world to start a company like this. This is such a refreshing position for me where, you know, I spend most of my career trying to chase the US. And in this case, we're genuinely having investors or talent coming from the US to Europe because 
they want to work in climate. We have the right to win in Europe in climate. The UK is the first country in the world that has a net zero definition um, that, that it's legally binding that says you have to reduce your emissions by 90% and then uh, durably remove the rest. As companies are slowly moving to commit to a net zero target, that basically creates a beautiful and sort of not only an encouragement, you know, not only incentive, but actually, you know, it's, it's something that you're going to have to do to keep your social license to operate. And as these things start kicking in, we can start looking at organizations basically creating budgets that will be able to fuel the development of carbon removals. Um, as a sector, I've never been I've never been in a private sector that is this excited about compliance. It's fascinating. I'm seeing venture capitalists talking about talking about regulation. We're we're a team of ten and we're actively hiring for a policy director. Like what, what I'd never worked with a policy team prior to Google because you know obviously for a large organization it needed one. But you know at Asimo at peak there were three hundred of us. We never need we had a compliance person because we were a fintech. We never needed a policy person. So it's an opportunity to actually if we do this properly, if we properly engage with suppliers, buyers finance, talent, and regulators, we can actually create regulation that unlocks opportunities rather than hinders them. And that I think is something that's, that's, that's very compelling. But, you know, aside from that, I think, you know, basically a shout out to you, you ask what's needed to get this industry moving, we need to increase awareness and increase trust. So having an opportunity to come onto this podcast and talk about carbon removals, as this essential industry you need to get off the ground and getting people excited about it, that's part of the solution. So thank you for having us. And thank you for coming on. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to add, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm, we, we may come on to this in a, in a moment, but I think you know, we're talking about what, what needs to shift and you know, what needs to be true for this industry to get off the ground. I think there's a lot of work around narrative setting. There's a lot of work around rule setting. But the reality is we, we, we need action. And I think actually, I think one of the things, and I'm, I'm, we're really starting to see this, this sort of shift in this undercurrent at the moment. I think we really need a, a shift towards action and a shift away from right now, obsessing over claiming. And I think if there's one thing that, that I and Marta and, and Gabriel and others in the team say a lot to our, to our clients and people that we work with is do things now, start investing in the carbon removals industry now, start getting your plan together now, and worry about claiming later. Like that, I think that is the future of what good climate action looks like. And I think you know, there's so much, I think, good evidence to back that up. I mean, Brand Finance put out a brilliant piece a couple of weeks ago, which essentially dug into this theory a bit more and said, let's look at the kind of performance, the ESG performance of companies, and then let's look at the, the sort of perceived performance of those companies. And, you know, suffice to say, it's those that are doing the hard work and not shouting loudly about it that have massive upside in terms of their brand. You know, Microsoft is the classic example. Microsoft being the big early adopter of carbon removals, the, the guys that took the really first early risks. And I think I think that's the message that industry needs to hear, not, not to be fixated on exactly what to claim now, but to start doing something that builds an industry that we all unequivocally need for the future. From what I know about Curate, something that um, seems to be very much at the heart of the business is trust and transparency. And I think in an industry surrounded, surrounded with skepticism, it's very important. So how are you um how are you addressing the skeptics and how are you ensuring your kind of credibility and accountability in the industry so i just wonder maybe as we try and attack it let's just be very clear about what the skepticisms are because i think 
many people find that really confusing. So the, the first thing is differentiating between different types of carbon credits and what are the different challenges around different types of carbon credits. And in the world of in the world of curates, and Gabriel wrote a brilliant op-ed um, about it in Time magazine last year, there are three types of credits. You have your protection credits. So we're protecting natural carbon sinks, say stopping forests from being chopped down. You have your reduction credits, you know, maybe you're moving to solar. Um, and then you have your removal credits. Now, protection and reduction, these largely have been offset so far, you know, like the pay $3 and plant a tree and feel great about the fact that you took a long haul flight. Well, mathematically, we know a lot of that just doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. The, the, the negative impact of that flight does not uh, you know, is not proportional to the positive impact of planting that tree. That is not to say we shouldn't be planting trees. It's just about that not being equivalent. And a lot of the skepticism in recent months has been around issues with Vera, with Red Plus offsets. And there's definitely been a bit of a shift of, okay, offsets, we thought they're, you know, they're the solution. They might not be. When it comes to removal specifically, the skepticism largely comes from the fact that there is a risk, perceived risk, that if we could just switch on a machine and that machine would suck carbon out of the air, then this is going to distract people from reducing their emissions. Now, the thing is, for instance, at Curate, we immediately took a position that we will not sell to or work with anyone who isn't already on a radical decarbonization journey. And it goes back to the legal definition of net zero and what the SBTI recommends. You have to first reduce and then remove. Now, that is not necessarily first in time, you know, reduce as much as you can only then start removing, but you have to be reducing and removing in tandem because this is how we're going to stay below 1.5. If we wait to remove until we've reduced, we won't manage. If we don't reduce and only remove, we won't manage. It has to be both together. And I think the challenge and the reason why there is this sort of this moral hazard dilemma of, you know, is this going to disincentivize people from, from reductions? A lot of it comes from the fact that going back to the point around how much budget there is currently in organizations to pay for this stuff, we're all fighting for the same pot of money. People that are protecting the forests are afraid that people that are removing carbon using sky hoovers um, are going to pitch for that same budget. And this is why fundamentally, you know, Dom's role at Curate is so important. You know, we need to be working with organizations to create bigger budgets for this, create budgets for reductions and budgets for removals. I think if we, when we get to that place, it's actually going to become very, very clear that there is only an upside. I'm so glad you kind of touched on this moral hazard argument, Marta, because I think increasingly, I think there's just so much evidence that is is debunking that as a as a as a school of thought. Um, Trove uh, Research actually put something out last month that. It's the first, I think, kind of longitudinal study we've seen in this space that looked at about 5,000 corporates that had bought um, carbon credits, a, a, mi a mix of carbon credits. Um, and essentially, um, when when you strip that out of the base of performance, what, what the finding said essentially is that, that businesses that are using carbon credits are decarbonizing twice as fast. And so look, there's, there's lots of things that we can dig into at a sector level and what that means, but ultimately that the sort of narrative doesn't hold that it's being used as a, as a vehicle for, for distracting or augmenting the reality of not decarbonizing and, and performing well. And I think, you know, it's it's such a fascinating job to be trying trying to build an industry because you know as you heard from Marta in terms of making the sort of credibility case we're having to traverse everything from 
why removals and all, all the stuff that we started talking about in the beginning of this conversation in terms of why does the planet need it? What does science say about it? What's the IPCC's view on this? And this is a credible industry. We absolutely need to have it. And we need to ramp it up at unprecedented pace by 2050 and beyond and sustain it beyond that planetary level. You know, we need to make, make the case for what, what type of removals, what kind of portfolio. We then need to make the case, why now? You know, why, why don't we have to wait until 2050? Why do we have to start this work now? And then right at the end of that journey, we, we have to be a business and say, why curate? But, you know, we, it, it takes us a while to get down to why curate because we're very busy doing all the hard work saying, why now? Why removals? What does that look like? And I think, you know, we're, we're getting kind of increasingly that the, the why removals, I think, is getting easier and easier. I think we're, we're starting to get some real momentum and industry level behind this. I think awareness is starting to tip. I, I think it would be, you know, it wouldn't be representative to say there's broad awareness of carbon removals, but I think things are shifting radically. Um, I think the, the why and now element, I think, is still pretty t- tricky. You know, the, the market is complex. You know, this isn't a really clear obvious asset that trades with a really clear obvious price and quality relationship at the moment you know you can't think about carbon removals in the same way that you would as a commodity you know but better to think of it as a bond than than a commodity market and I think so there's still a lot of reticence around you know opaqueness around pricing and how do we drive visibility for that you know why buy now I think certainly in the conversations I I have with my clients the reality is demand is going to peak radically in the next few years for this, particularly if you think about we've got a whole host of organizations with pretty near-term net zero targets, anything from 25 to 2030. You know, demand is going to really start peaking and radically shooting up probably from about 2025. You're going to see exactly the same thing happening with price. So the reality is that the sooner organizations test and learn and start to work out how to, 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 to operate in this industry and buy this industry, they're, they're actually going to start to get a portfolio at a cheaper price. So the, the incentives are there. We just need to tip this out of the very, very early adopters into the early majority now. And that's a hu- huge part of what Curate has to do. Be- beyond just you know talking about us as a business and our view, we have to do all of that top, top of the market awareness, market education stuff. And two things, if I can quickly add. One on Dom's brilliant point that companies buying removals are actually decarbonizing faster. So our portfolios, sub 1,000 tons, cost $185 a ton or 150 pounds. This is genuinely A, the cheapest you can possibly get it to to put together a portfolio of quality, additional, durable carbon removals from across the technological spectrum. Also, it's pegged to the social cost of carbon. Every time we emit a ton of carbon, it costs society $185 in uh, risk to human health, migration, displacement, financial assets, real estate. So we're basically saying you shouldn't be able to remove for less than it costs um, society when you emit. Now, it is almost always going to be cheaper to reduce than to remove. That creates a commercial incentive to radically decarbonize within your value chain before you go to beyond value chain mitigation. But also touching upon the whole point around trust, I mean, obviously a lot, of, a lot of the conversations on this podcast revolve around talent. Talent is really important. I am so incredibly proud and pleased. I, I do think we have the best team in the business. You know, a, a renowned climate scientist, you know, a, a systems thinking expert, a, a former founder of an actual supplier of carbon removals, the credibility with which Dom can enter a room and say, this is the work that needs to be done by a supplier. And this is how we ensure that this is done properly. Uh, and a number of other colleagues that, that are absolutely fantastic. But I also think a lot of it does come down to 
understanding where does your unique selling point sell, sit and sort of what's your IP. We're, we're a tech startup that was frankly started from a spreadsheet. And I'm very proud of that because we've put in all of our effort into building a proprietary due diligence process that helps us verify the quality of supply. So we look at over 150 data points across impact, integrity, and scalability of a given solution and a supplier. And then we basically pick winners and we keep on onboarding them. But it's, 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 it's a heavy, intensive process. And I think one of the things that are going to be critical for, for climate tech as a category or, or clean innovations to take off is that we understand that, you know, the world has been dominated by software for the longest time. Well, arguably, we started from hardware, except we didn't call it that. Then there was a lot of software. And I think we're in a place where to build climate tech businesses in the right way. These are ecosystem businesses. It's something that our investors very much recognize. Um, we just a month ago announced a, a 5.3 million pound round backed by some of the world's best investors, including Google Ventures. And, and, and the view has very much been, this is an ecosystem business. We need software, we need hardware, and we need science, and we need to invest in all of those to really make it a proper play with trust and integrity that's going to help stand up an entire industry. I want to switch it up here slightly um, and but just based on based on both of you and how you explain this and you're so passionate and so positive and I think there are so many challenges but in the journey that you're on um, and with the mission that you've got how do you both stay positive when when things get tough? I'm happy to jump in first Marta. Yeah I think I, I, I think you, you wouldn't be doing this job if you didn't have a slightly, uh, sadistic is totally the wrong word, but like a relentless interest in solving extremely complex problems. You know, this, this is not an industry to be working in if you want any kind of blueprint if you want any kind of roadmap that's been done before. Look, we, we've built new in, industries. You know, re renewables are an interesting reference point for our, for our market. But ultimately, this this is, you know, a brand new frontier. This is, you know, I, I, I love Mar Marta's turn of phrase for this, you know, talking about this akin to a sort of space race of the 21st century. I think if you are fundamentally exercised by solving some of the most complex problems we have and starting at ground zero then like that's what carries you because that's ultimately what you're working on here. And I think that, that there's nothing else I can think of. You know, so many things that I care about in terms of social impact. There are so, so many things that I'm sort of invested in in terms of social justice and environmental justice, but there is nothing that I can anchor myself in that feels less developed and more needed than the carbon removals industry right now. And I think ultimately that that's the thing that I think we all fall back on when we're in, peak complexity and the market is, you know, market is peak underdeveloped and, you know, we, we have no idea what the future looks like and our business, you know, it could pivot six six times in the future. But I, I think it's that kind of unrelenting focus on trying to solve this problem and, and knowing, and I totally agree with Marta, knowing that we have some of the most diverse and brilliant problem solvers in our team, I think, I think is what's carrying me. I mean, I think it's just to build on that, I actually think it's an absolute privilege to be able to do something that not only builds a single company, but actually contributes to how people think about solutions to climate change and how an industry is going to operate. I mean, the impact here is not is no longer like a double bottom line. It's, it's triple, quadruple. I don't know the like what an incredible privilege to be able to have a seat at the table and have a point of view and have an opportunity to make a dent in the universe. 
like often if, if I get to speak about sort of my my origin story, like I was I was I was born and raised in Krakow, Poland. My parents didn't have a passport until they were in their 40s. And I, you know, I was 16 when Poland entered the European Union. I was able to travel and anywhere in the world and live anywhere in Europe. And and the Internet was 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 on the rise. And suddenly, you know, at 19 years old, it was possible to with, with no money to my name start a company because it took a few lines of code. And I think one of the reasons why I am so passionate about tech and using technology to solve the world's biggest problems is you actually genuinely need to just bring together a group of people that care about the, the, a shared vision and a shared solution and have an opportunity to run at it. And I think you know, for, as, for, for as long as we focus on on you know how do we make incremental progress every day and how do we celebrate successes every day and how do we find answers and how do we how do we sprint to good insights i think that is just endlessly rewarding uh, but just but just to put it in context on how to stay positive i also nearly obsessively run and listen to really really loud angry music <laughs> That's kind of the, the balance. Everyone has their secret balancer. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's really angry music. And then wine. I mean, oh, yes, wine. There is there is wine being had. We definitely have a culture of, of, of wine and cocktails. <laughs> wine features strongly. Let's, let's not. <laughs> I think it's, it's important to have a balance in life. Yep. It certainly is. Um, and you touched on your background there, but um, something I always like to, to discuss with female leaders in businesses um, is your advice to other females contemplating a career in this space, either founding a business or joining a business? Um, is there anything you'd specifically share with with our female listeners? I'm just thinking back to my 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 last organisation. I we were uh, yeah, it was me and a bunch of boys for the, for the main part. You know, a lot, a lot of uh, folks in product, a lot a lot of folks in in kind of software engineering, and you know, I I've had actually a more mixed experience in terms of. Uh, working with strong female leaders, we like we like to joke and call call curate a, a matriarchy. But it's you know we, we've got lots of brilliant brilliant male leaders as well. But um, yeah, so I think I de- definitely plenty of experience being you know a, a sort of female leader and, and often not not being fairly fairly alone in that. I think I think for me it's it's always been about feeling like I can bring an authentic version of myself to work. And feeling like I can be authoritative, but in a in a way that makes sense for me. And like authoritative for me is is pretty like high empathy. It's you know it's thoughtful. It's reflective. Um, and like being able to find that blend of like the style of leading that is both authoritative or an authentic, I think is what's helped me kind of find my way and not not feeling that I have to model a certain way or look or talk or behave a certain way but finding something that's really authentic and I think I think my sort of knowledge and my power and my influence and my authority has kind of flowed from that once I sort of found that position which is which is authentic to me and just like feeling rooted and confident in that which is immovable because it's mine it comes from me it's my experience it's my it's myself um I think I think kind of gutturally that's what's been like I think the biggest arc in in, in my experience and kind of learning to lead effectively particularly when they're, they're typically fairly male dominated teams and I think Dom if I can also just sort of shout out to you I mean aside from being all these brilliant things that you are at work you're also a mom which I'm not like that woman just endlessly impresses me we actually have quite a lot of parents of young children at Curate and I and that's a new experience for me obviously partly because you know I'm in many years older than I was in my, in my previous startups but I think you know I think this is another like there's a huge benefit of having 
leaders and also women leaders that deeply care about their professional careers and their home careers. And I think this incredible blend of what it means for productivity, you know, there's less BS and more like, let's get great work done and sometimes go for a drink, but also let's run home because I have a precious four-year-old and I want to spend quality time with them and I don't want work to spill into my, my time after work. Like I think, I think having people like Dom in the office also creates a culture that is more inclusive and that's more welcoming of bringing these different parts of oneself to work because it's suddenly okay to to be an absolute badass at work, but also to spend 15 minutes talking about very expensive bikes that carry children. What was that 6,000 pound bike that you guys have been talking about? I'm not buying the 6,000 pound bike. This is the electric bike, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> We've had very similar discussions recently. <laughs> that actually just brings me on to my very last question. Um, and Marta, a couple of times in, in this discussion, you've talked about talent and how lucky you are to have such an incredible team. But thinking just one step bigger than Curate and the carbon industry, um, what does it need from a talent perspective? I know everyone and the most brilliant people, but is there anything that you can sort of say if you're listening to this and, and this is who you are, we really need you in the industry? So I think one of the, and actually this, this rhymes nicely with your question around sort of female leadership. I have never been in an industry that is this close to gender parity. And I was wondering why that is. And I think a lot of it is because software is for a plethora of reasons dominated by men. Definitely so is finance. And sort of these are the worlds in which I spend most of my life. But but science isn't. We have excellent, extraordinary female scientists. So when I look at climate techs in the broader sense, not just carbon, there are so many exceptional female founders um, actually, women, let's say women, I think that's a more inclusive term, uh, women founders and, and women um, and women leaders. And I think that's very compelling. Uh, just yesterday, Dom and I uh, were doing a, an interview actually with a, with, a, with a former founder herself who's now thinking about um, get, taking a job. And we asked her one of the reasons why she was interested in Curate. And she said, wouldn't it be great to work in a team that has so many women leaders? Like what kind of a culture would that bring? So I think... One thing is I genuinely think climate and, and clean tech is an excellent place for women that want to feel seen and included and represented. I think um, an observation from sort of my, my broader experience also often thought to be that jobs in startups predominantly require technical skills. Do you have to be a mechanical engineer or a software engineer or something of, or, yeah, or a finance professional? Whereas actually... Most jobs in tech are non-tech. We need marketing, we need design, we need HR, we need you know the entire uh, the entire sort of wraparound service. And and I think many shy away from looking at tech as a category because it feels foreign. Whereas I actually think there is an incredible amount of opportunity there. And again, going back to the point around diversity, obviously we need diversity of gender. We we need racial diversity. This is one of the areas that is really close to my heart. And I'm nervous that in clean tech, we don't have enough, or in climate specifically, we don't have enough talent today from different racial backgrounds. And I think it's probably largely due to the fact that, well, climate was 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 not a very well-paid category for a very long time. And with issues related to generational wealth, obviously, maybe, maybe it was less compelling, but there is increasingly money in climate. Please come to climate. If you're, if you're a person of color or especially a woman of color, please, please come and apply for any job at Curate. We want to see you there. <laughs> 
But um, Dom, what would you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an eternal kind of optimist. And I think the, the sort of fascinating thing for me is seeing this kind of groundswell around climate tech at the moment. And I think increasingly people in, in other industries, be it impact, be it other bits of the tech ecosystem, be it kind of big, big industry and big corporates, I think are starting to see this this corner, which maybe for years felt kind of niche and not accessible and not interesting, is suddenly becoming one, one of the most interesting, stimulating, kind of d- diverse places to work. And I think I think I agree with Marta. I think we have this huge opportunity and privilege to, to curate an industry in climate tech. And obviously, we're, we're doing that on, on a, a micro level within Curate, but to create an industry that is pulling the brightest and best in a really meritocratic way. You know, this this is such such a nascent industry and we have the chance to build it really from the bottom up in a way that, yeah, it, it, it's focused on the brightest and best. And so I think I think it's a really, you know, if I fast forward sort of 10 or 20 years, I, I can imagine a scenario where climate tech is an incredibly diverse uh, sector in, in every sense of the word. And I think, you know, it's beholden upon us as, you know, on a small level as a team to make sure that we role model that and get that right in our own organization. Fantastic. Well, there's some great messages out there for our listeners. Um, and thank you so much for both sharing your stories. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, as I said at the start, what a great double act. I think your, your team are lucky to work with you both. Um, and we very much appreciate you sharing with such kind of openness the uh, the story that you've both been on so far um, and I see see great things for you both for Curate and for the industry as a whole. Thank you so much what a pleasure. Thank you.